Hey y'all, exciting news! Unladylike has been nominated for a Webby Award. And you may be like, cool, but what is a Webby Award? Well, it's this fancy schmancy award for like amazing podcasts and other digital things that live on the internet. And the people, as in you, get to choose the winners. And no, there is no electoral college for this. It is one person, (laughs) one vote. And that means we need your help. As of this recording, we're in first place and we want to stay there because winning helps new folks find our show and gives us the glory we crave. That's right. So please, please vote and share the link with your friends. We've made it super easy for you. Just look in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app and click on the link that says Webbies. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you're a Latina, as represented in media, you're either a Santa or a Sucia. And to me, what we've done with the zine is like opening up space to like show all the in-between. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen, and we're talking zines today, thanks to another Kristen, Kristen Torres, who works at our podcast network, Stitcher, out in L.A. Hello, Kristen and Caroline. (laughs) Hello. Okay, Kristen Torres, before we get into the unladylikeness of zines, can you tell us what they are? Glad you asked. A zine is a self-published book that can contain anything and everything your heart desires. That could be poems, photos, collages, short essays, illustrations, a mix of all of those combined. That is essentially a zine. So when I think of zines, I think of the early 90s, like, riot girl scene. Um, But DIY zine culture is having, like, a huge revival right now. So when did you discover zines? So I didn't discover zines until my 20s. I attended my first zine fest in 2013 in Los Angeles, and I was instantly attracted to the DIY mentality, the do-it-yourself, seek no permission, just get it done on your own terms and take control over your own narrative, which just was really mind-blowing for me. There are a lot of women of color taking up space in this scene, particularly. And what I love about it is that as a woman of color, as a first-generation Mexican-American woman, I have found more representation into so many different stories that have been published in zines. So as Kristen and I set out today, what are you hoping we discover about zines and zine culture? Okay, here's my mission. Okay. (laughs) Should you choose to accept? Uh, (laughs) I am just very curious about how other women of color make sense of their experience through zine making. And I'd really love for y'all to explore how zines are being preserved so that future generations can get a better understanding of what our context was in this time and day. And we are so excited to go on this zine quest. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I feel like we should be outfitted in, like, armor. We have a zine flag. We're just, like, marching into our zine quest. (laughs) Yes. Just denim jackets with, like, patches (laughs) all on the back. (laughs) 
pockets full of glue sticks and scissors and a stapler. <laughs> and like Just, glitter. Yes. Yeah. But first, um, thank you so much for inspiring us to take a closer look at zines. Thank you, Kristen and Caroline. Have fun and go forth. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Kristen Conger, you ready to go on this zine quest? I am. Let's do it. How Latinas are represented in media is, like, very rare, number one. And then when we are represented, you're either shown as, like, an older lady who's, like, a maid who, like, wears a rosary. And then the other side of that... It's like a hypersexualization of Latinas, like Sofia Vergada, who is like in this TV show and she's supposed to be like, I think she's like a, a stay-at-home mom, yeah. but she's like always wearing tight jeans and a push-up bra. And I'm just like, dude, if I was a stay-at-home mom, I'd be wearing a Snuggie or a Moomoo every day. Okay, y'all, meet the zine queens we're talking to first today. My name is Natasha Hernandez. Um, hi, my name is Isabel Ann Castro. So how would you two describe uh, your relationship to each other? Uh, we're homegirls. We met because both of our ex-boyfriends were in the same punk band. Isabel and Natasha are two punk Latinas living in San Antonio, Texas. And they are dedicated to claiming their media space and showing that there are a lot more than just two ways to be a Latina. And we were so pumped to talk to them because in our research for this zine quest, one thing that jumped out to us right away is that Latinx zines in particular, like the one that Isabel and Natasha make, are really thriving right now. Yes. For almost the past five years, from 2014 to January 2019, Isabel and Natasha have poured pretty much all of their free time into making their zine. It's called Saint Susia, Exposing What It Is to Be a Mujer. Okay, so Spanish 101 question here. Uh, What does Susia mean? Oh, yeah. Like, it's like something that people say to, like, talk shit about women. It's like slut or like whore, or like floozy, dirty, tart, (laughs) I don't know, just like all kinds of like negative words. It's like in Spanish, like people like talking shit, like, oh, I heard you get around, you're sucia, like that. Like that's how people use that word. And when Isa first approached me like, hey, let's do this magazine called St. Susia, I was like way up here with it. I was like, there's so many levels. It's obviously about like representation in media, feminism, taking words back, ownership and Issa's like no 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 it's this fake thing I came up with and I was all cool well to me (laughs) it's got all of these levels that I'm gonna embrace with Natasha as editor and Isabel as art director the pair definitely embraced all those levels from their first to the 14th and final issue of Saint Susia now the zine was Isabel's idea she'd been through a bad breakup with a shitty dude and wanted to pour her energy into something creative Even though they weren't particularly close, she remembered Natasha as being encouraging when it came to dumping douchey guys. And so I just, like, really appreciated, like, her uh, just honesty with me of my relationship as someone who was just trying to, like, hold it down for me and lift me up as a woman. And in a stroke of DIY kismet, Isabel spotted Natasha out one night at a bar. And I came out of the bathroom and I was drunk. She was drunk standing by a trash can because, I don't know, she was maybe writing poetry in a little notebook or something. Uh, and I saw her and I was like, hey, do you want to make a zine where brown girls just talk shit and be honest about their experiences? And she, was, she said yes. 
Isabel had been wanting to make a zine since she was in college, and Natasha was fully on board with this mission. For one, she'd already made a zine a couple years before about art in San Antonio and had her own collection. She fell in love with zines in college. Yeah, when she was a sophomore, Natasha had had an abortion but didn't tell anyone. A year later, she was feeling alone and just super depressed, and she went to visit her older sister in Austin. And to cheer her up, her sister took her out to this anarchist bookstore where Natasha discovered this whole rack of zines. And one of the zines was called Mine, and it was like an anthology of reproductive choices. And I took it home and I read it, and it changed my life because it was just like all these women are just like being honest about their situations and like being honest about what happened to them. And I never did that for myself. So after I read that zine, I was able to be like, it's okay for me to talk about what happened to me. And it really was like this moment where I like, this is powerful. Like just me recognizing that other people were like being vulnerable, sharing their stories. This changed me. So both Isabel and Natasha had weathered some emotional turmoil, but together they were an unstoppable pair. They wanted to create a space for brown girls to talk shit, and they did not need anyone's permission to do it. After they ran into each other that night at the bar, they pretty much immediately started planning their zine. They'd meet up after work on Natasha's front porch. They'd drink some beers and, like, text friends to ask for poetry and artwork submissions. Yeah, and they looked through Natasha's zine collection for inspiration on what size to make their zine, what paper to use, what binding to use. The first zine is, like, it's like a fake magazine. It's like a fake Latina feminist cosmopolitan. Like, it's like, here's my story about my one night stand with this guy who collected Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Uh, I wrote a fake magazine quiz in there that was like, what loteria lady are you? And it's like all jokes about like, you know, like inappropriate shit, you know? And then Issa <laughs> did like an illustration. We have like awesome art. And then also somebody submitted a drawing about recycling, and there's an abortion yeah. story in here. There's, like, my sister's protest photos in here. The first issue was truly a dedication to the zine's patron saint. That's right, Saint Susia. Right, so Saint Susia herself started as a joke that Isabel had with her college friends at Texas State University. So she was in a Latinx student organization there, and pretty much everybody in it had been raised Catholic. But Isabel realized that there, there wasn't really an appropriate Catholic saint to pray to for the kind of help that a college mujer might need. You know, I have so much stress. I'm trying to get laid. And I'm just like, you can't be asking the Venus for that. And I was like, you need, like, your own saint that gets it, that is down with this. Like, she's a dirty girl. So Isabel made up Santa Susia to be that saint who gets it. And so they'd be like, oh, yeah, like, um, I got another month of free birth control. Woo, Saint Susia has blessed me. Or you'd, like, go out partying <laughs> and then uh, come home and wake, like, pass out and wake up the next morning with your makeup still looking great. And you'd be like, Saint Susia has blessed me. The joke carried all the way to the back of issue one. Uh, the back page is Issa's, like, Susia kit. Oh, yeah, on the back cover, it's like, be prepared, Mahita. Um, and it's just like... Things. It's like what you have in your purse for, to have a one-night stand. Yeah, it's not what you carry in your purse. It's a bag in your car. It's like a tote bag, and it's got a Gatorade. It has condoms, perfumes, hand sanitizer. It's like a Susia bag. <laughs> but it's like an illustrated like map of like everything you need in this bag for a safe, good time. A Susia bag, that's brilliant. <laughs> right? So next, they decided to print a few hundred copies, sell them for five bucks each, and throw a launch party to celebrate the release of that first issue, aptly titled La Primera. 
Natasha's birthday was coming up, and every year she throws a big party and invites bands to play, and she calls it Tasha Palooza. Love it. So that year, they decided, hey, Tasha Palooza is going to double as our zine release party. So we made the first issue. We printed it on an intended copy machine. We sewed the binding together with my sewing machine. So it was just me and Issa passing the books back and forth through my sewing machine with, like, rainbow thread five minutes before we were out the door to our first uh, party. Like, we were rushing out of the house with a box full of, like, the sewn zines, and we were trying to get to the venue and, like, being really nervous, like, nobody was going to show up. And then all suddenly it felt like all of San Antonio was there. Tons of folks showed up. The college newspaper even came and wrote a piece about the event. And soon after Tasha Palooza, new submissions started rolling into their inbox from near and far. Every issue, we would get, like, more folks. So it was like, oh, my gosh, now we're getting submissions from Canada. Now we're getting submissions from Venezuela. Now we're in Central America. Now we're in Mexico. Like, now we're in Iowa. Like, that's how long it took to get there. (laughs) After the break, St. Susia grows from a DIY zine to a community and then a cultural artifact. Plus, we learn more about the Riot Girl zine revolution. Don't go away. We're back. And before we dive back in with St. Susia creators Isabella and Natasha, Caroline, let's take a quick look at how zines and feminism have collided. Yeah, because DIY publishing has been part of feminist and women's movements from pro-suffrage pamphlets and black women's club scrapbooks to Margaret Sanger's birth control brochures and second wave mimeographed manifestos. <laughs> Starting in the late 80s, though, zines become the foundational texts for third wave feminism and its focus on intersectionality, sexuality, and really disrupting pop culture. Yeah, the whole Riot Girl zine thing emerged out of punk and DIY scenes that basically only validated the music and art that the boys were making. And the girls were getting fed the fuck up. Yeah, because they were part of these anti-establishment scenes that were nonetheless still replicating the same misogyny and sexism found in the establishment. So things really got cooking in Olympia, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest in the early 90s, where women like Kathleen Hanna of the band Bikini Kill, who kind of became like the figurehead of Riot Girl, began calling for revolution girl style now, both on stage and, you guessed it, in zines. Yeah, zines like Jigsaw, which Toby Vale created, and Toby Vale was one of the Bikini Kill band members. And in the third issue, she wrote, Please listen to me, you motherfuckers. I, unlike hundreds of boy fanzine writers all across America, have a legitimate need and a desperate desire to be heard. But once the mainstream press got wind of these kooky women making noise, the entire movement quickly got whitewashed. In 1992, Newsweek published like this huge story about Riot Girl, describing them as, quote, young, white, suburban, and middle class. Yeah, so by the time Riot Girl faded out in the late 90s, Riot Girls of Color had kind of been erased from the whole narrative. But, like Natasha says, Riot Girl punk rock wasn't the only music shaping feminism. 
I feel like I didn't give a shit at all about Riot Girl zine culture in the 90s because, I mean, when all that stuff was coming out, you know what else was out? Salt and Peppa. That's amazing feminism. With your life, why you gotta mess with mine? Don't keep sweating what I do, cause I'm gonna be just fine. Check it out. So like salt and pepper was my feminism. <laughs> Queen Latifah was my feminism. TLC was my feminism. Like those were the folks that were like, hey, use condoms, respect yourself. Men need to respect you. And I was like, yes, of course. Thank you, radio. Um, so I didn't have any access to like right girl culture at all. I feel like it's part of zine history and it is an important part of feminist history. But I don't feel that connection to it because it wasn't there for me. But Natasha says she still does totally respect Bikini Kill and Riot Girl for the ways the whole movement was able to spread feminism, you know, like pre-internet. So if they're out there distroing zines that are like, hey, men need to respect you, fuck catcalling, fuck rape culture, and it was the first access any people, I don't know, in the Midwest or in North Texas or wherever had access to this information, that is a revolution. It doesn't matter that it didn't, you know, get to me. You know, I think that it's valid. Isabel also thinks that Riot Girl is a useful point of access for folks. Like when we're doing workshops, we we reference um, the Riot Girl movement in our slides, but then we skip over it to like, hey, here's also a giant robot who is an Asian American zine in California who is also producing content. And then here's like what Bust was in like the 90s and like here's what it is now. It's very different. But I think it's just like a point for people that it's accessible because then they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I've seen my older cousin with a bikini kill shirt. Yeah. And, like, they'll kind of <laughs> jump in and understand. So in addition to the Kathleen Hannas, you also had zinesters of color like Mimi Wen, who was making noise about erasure, white supremacy, and harassment in the punk scene in her 1997 zine called Evolution of a Race Riot. In the first issue, Mimi wrote... The race riot has lagged years behind the girl one for reasons that should be obvious by now. White boys' mentality became a legitimate target, but white girls' racial privilege and discourse went unmarked, except among those of us who were never white. Wenzine was basically calling out white feminism, like, way before intersectionality became part of, like, the mainstream feminist lexicon. Plus, hello, it highlighted the fact that people of color were publishing tons of zines. Riot girl zines like Mamacita, Hey White Girl, and Slant. So while the media Isabel and Natasha were creating with St. Susia felt new, like, they were continuing a tradition of countercultural DIY self-publishing. By this point, the St. Susia community is growing with each new issue they put out, and submissions were pouring in. Natasha and Isabel realized that their zine was kind of doing the same thing for brown girls today that the whole Riot Girl movement had done in the 90s, providing another access point to ideas of feminism, self-acceptance, and identity. Only this time around, intersectionality was front and center. I didn't really think about the word Latina and how it's so varied until we did the zine. Like me and Isa are from San Antonio. This is a really Chicano city. So to me, like Latina has like a lot of connection to like Chicano culture. But then we started doing the zine and it's like, no, there's also like a lot of other folks that are Latinas. Like there's like a lot of like queer Latinas. There's a lot of transgender Latinas. There's a lot of Afro Latinas. There's a lot of indigenous Latinas. There's a lot of folks who like don't necessarily identify as Latina, but identify as Mexican or identify as Puerto Rican or have all these different ways of identifying with the word mujer, which is like what we use to like 
you know, kind of describe our contributors? We had someone who was non-binary, but they they said they didn't identify as a woman, but they did feel close to the term mujer. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, cool. There's like a cultural aspect there. And I was like, cool, we'll accept your work and we printed it. And, you know, it was just kind of seeing like there's so many overlaps and singularities that you see in this identity and those voices should be heard. And if it is zine making, then so be it. The more their submissions reflected the whole Mujeres spectrum, the more Isabel and Natasha had to stretch their own understandings of what those identities look like on the page. Yeah, so for instance, Natasha, who, remember, is the St. Susia editor, like, she had to figure out the best way to edit Spanglish, you know, what, what the grammar rules around slang would be. I'm like, I've never heard this word before in my life. And we Google it, and it's like, oh, it's Dominican slang. Awesome. We just learned yeah. a new word. Yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know, like, each issue came with lessons, and by the time maybe, like, our sixth issue, we had, like, a good system going of, like, how we go through submissions, because at that point, we were getting so many, and it was like, okay, we're not fucking around anymore. This is a bit more serious, because people are sending us their work, and it's, like, really heavy content, and they're trusting us with it. They're trusting us with their stories. It was like, all of a sudden, people were like, this is a story about my identity, and how I don't know how to identify because I'm third generation, or because I'm Afro-Latina, or because I'm indigenous and Latina, or because I'm from Costa Rica, but I've only ever lived in Arizona. Like these really intense stories about like language and how like the language you use affects your identity about sexuality and how like a lot of Latinas feel like it's not okay for them to come out and they want to like share their story so that other women can feel okay to come out. Isabel and Natasha felt proud to be able to feature work by mujeres who weren't getting published anywhere else. And to create community from their own personal stories, too. Like, I, in, like, our fourth issue, there's a comic of, like, my first one-night stand, and that's uh, me going to, like, a punk rock show, and I end up crying in an H-E-B parking lot. And, <laughs> and like, H-E-B is, like, our local Texas grocery store. And, like, women had bought the zine and read it and came back to me, and they're like, hey, I've cried over a man in an H-E-B parking lot. I'm like, yes, like, you get it. Thank you. And and so just uh, just kind of finding those little bits of solidarity in um, other uh, black and brown women. And, like, I don't know, that all that shit just feel like fills my heart with joy is when someone, like, really connects to whatever we publish. Like, that's what our shit's about. And we just, like, love doing it. After their first issue, Isabel and Natasha decided to use the money they'd made to print the next issue of the zine professionally. So, you know, rather than trying to scout out unmonitored photocopy machines, they wanted to get it printed and bound like a little magazine, like produce a legit feeling product that could accommodate more contributors. But that meant finding a print shop that got what they were trying to do, which turned out to be surprisingly difficult. If you think about what other publishers experience, they probably didn't have to drive around town going to, like, six different print shops because people are, like, not taking your work seriously even though you have cash money to pay them right there and then or, like, refusing to talk to you about your project. Like, we had all these walls that we came up against. And there was also, like, a lot of flack about, like, well, what do you guys even do? Like, why are y'all promoting, like, making, like, Latinos look bad or making, like, Latinas look like dirty asses or all this kind of shit? But it's just, like, dirty asses. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, I yeah. <laughs> And why can't you call it Saint Successful? And so now it's, like, a joke that we have. Yeah, we're, we're like, like oh, oh, Saint Successful, that's us. 
But they were successful. St. Susia started publishing four zines a year. In each issue, they would receive hundreds of submissions about abortion, rape, identity, immigration, family. Sometimes it was difficult to get through everything, especially when they were dealing with their own families or relationship problems. No matter how intense it got, though, the zine felt like a way to connect. With our last issue, I felt... Like, it came to a nice, like, round place where I started the zine because I was, like, fucking angry. And, like, I didn't know what to do with it. And now it kind of rounded up to a nice place where I feel whole again as a person, like, who used zines as a creative outlet and then, like, found my creative life partner with Natasha. Like, we traveled together all the time doing zine stuff, promoting the zine. And, like, I never thought I would meet somebody, like, so on par with, like, my brain waves and like, really thinking out, like, damn, there's, like, more to life than, like, the people you fuck and how they fuck up your life. But, like, I just found so much love and healing and solidarity through the zine that I never thought I would have. Yeah, like, we're just, like, sisters now. Um, but, yeah, like, everybody <laughs> else that we've published, like, it's been so amazing meeting other, like, mujeres that are, like, creators in the world. And that larger community Natasha and Isabel have built around St. Susia, like, to them, that is what it's all about, those real-life relationships they forge. And just like Kristen Torres told us at the top of the episode, Isabel and Natasha say the best place for forging those relationships is zine fests. Yeah, zine fests are basically like punk literature fairs where folks set up tables and sell or swap their zines. And a lot of times there's music, maybe workshops or other DIY merch, you know, stuff like that. Every zine fest you go to, there's always, you know, a lot of artists of color. There's always a lot of queer folks. There's always a lot of women. And it's because since it is a space where there's no gatekeeping because you print yourself, it's a great space for, like, a lot of folks who don't usually get promoted as artists, as writers, as creators. Isabel and Natasha were going to tons of zine fests around the country. And they realized they just needed to start their own. So, in 2017, they got a bunch of folks in San Antonio together and started planning. The first zine fest they put on attracted all sorts of indie publishers, designers, photographers, and yes, of course, aspiring zinesters. Plus, a lot of those folks who help them run it and who participate are other women of color. We have an understanding of what it is to be excluded from spaces. Like, we know what it's like to be, like, not included in gallery shows or not invited into like these high art spaces, like those types of things. And because of that, since we're the people holding the reins now, when we organize, we're specifically like, we need to prioritize women. We need to bring folks of color in. We need to make sure that we're making space for people who historically have not had this access. That includes academia. The hard work Natasha, Isabel, and other folks in the community put into St. Susia attracted the attention of their friend Magda, who's a professor at UC Santa Barbara. She's also from San Antonio, and when she came home for the holidays, she got her hands on a copy of St. Susia. And uh, the next semester she was teaching, and she got a gender studies class and was like, I'm going to put this on our syllabus. This is something contemporary that should be read and studied. It's happening now. You know, this isn't like a like brown girl feminism from like the 80s. This is something that's happening now that could hopefully inspire her students and how they think about like uh, feminism. And at first and I was like really like not having it. I felt really weird about being included in academia because I was like, what do they want with us? 
Like we sell zines off a folding table at like punk, punk shows. shows in basements. Yeah, and- like why are why are they doing this? Are they trying to take our work? Are they trying to take credit for our work? Because I feel like academia has always been a space that's been like an exclusion, like a space where it like they exclude a lot of folks. It's always been very white and very male. Like I spent a lot of hours at, at Texas State in the library, and it was like I was like, oh, you know what? Like I was a uh, part of uh, Latina Student Org, and I was like trying to find stuff for us to talk about. And it was at some point, you know, the shelf ran out and then it was like onto another subject. And so for us to get reached like the academic realm where university libraries are putting us on their shelves for checkout, for archiving, it's really amazing to like take up physical space on a shelf. Natasha's also come around on the academia thing. Ultimately, she sees it as a way to make St. Susia even more accessible, which, by the way, Caroline, it's not just being taught in that Chicano studies class. It's now on syllabi for gender studies classes, women's studies, Latino contemporary literature classes. And you know, Kristen, UC Santa Barbara, where their friend teaches, is not the only library taking an interest in zines. No, it is not. Universities, bookstores, public libraries, all of these places around the country are adding zines to their catalog. And our producer, Abigail, went to visit one of the most prestigious zine libraries housed at Barnard College in New York. When we come back, Abigail reports from her Zine Quest field trip and tells us why libraries are helping preserve zines for years to come. And we'll hear what the St. Susia Mujeres are up to next. Stay with us. We're back, and we've got senior producer Abigail Keel here. Hi, Hi Abigail. Abigail. Hi, you twins. <laughs> <laughs> we like to greet in unison. Yeah, we try to actually speak in unison constantly. Constantly. Oh, so oh. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so Abigail, Caroline, and I live in Atlanta, but mm-hmm. you live in New York. That's right, baby. <laughs> and when we started working on this episode, we found out that right there in your fair city, there existed a zine collection at the library at Barnard. And so, you know, we sent you there to check it out. Tell us, what did you find? Right. Okay. So, yeah, a couple weeks ago, I strapped on my audio gear, hopped on the subway, and I headed uptown to Barnard College, which is a private women's college that's part of Columbia University. And I found their gorgeous library building on their new quad, and met up with Jenna Friedman, who is the zine librarian there, among other things. And Jenna is a super rad lady. She has this cool pink streak in her otherwise gray hair, and she is the one who started the zine collection at Barnard. She's been a librarian for years, and she's not afraid to admit that she kind of fits the stereotype. Yes, I love cats. I wear cardigans, but I do not knit. So not all the stereotypes. Right. That's right. Sorry, I shouldn't have put her in a box. (laughs) So, Abigail, like, what is the zine library exactly? Yeah, that's a good question. I didn't really know what to expect when I got up there. But um, basically, Jenna walked me out of her office and through a door into the main library. And suddenly we were standing in this little corner that was completely flanked by zines. We're surrounded. (laughs) We're surrounded, I know. And I teach classes in here. We'll drag in like a monitor and computer. Um, So it's really great to like have the class like just surrounded by zines. 
The space was basically like 20 feet by 10 feet with this big table in the center. And all around are big library bookshelves filled with these little separators and then tons and tons of zines, which are so, you know, small and delicate. They just looked so cute on these big old shelves. (laughs) The collection has over 5,000 zines for folks to check out. And then they have about twice that many stored in their archives. So, like, what zines, though, are there, and and how do they even pick them? Yeah, so the, the special and cool, I think, thing about Barnard's collection is that because it's a women's college, they focus on collecting zines created by women, both cis women and trans women, with an emphasis on women of color. And their zines range in topic from personal zines to zines about feminism, gender, parenting music, all kinds of zine topics. Mm-hmm. Creators can just send their zines to the library, but Jenna likes to buy them at festivals or online. She says it's important to her to pay the going rate. You know, you should see what a lot of libraries pay for subscriptions to science journals. You know, and that's thousands and thousands of dollars that goes to the publisher, not even to the people who actually wrote the articles. So I feel like if I can give $2 to a person who made a zine and all of it's going to go to them, then that's what I'm going to do. So, uh, like, for instance, I told Jenna that we were talking to the St. Susia gals for this episode, and she had not heard of that zine, but she reached out to them and bought a few copies of it. And they had actually arrived the day I went to go visit her. Oh, my God. That's so perfect. I love that. I I'm also so impressed that we, like, talked to zine creators that Jenna Friedman, the librarian of zines, hadn't even heard of before. That's so cool. Well, it speaks to how many zine creators there are out there. Well, so how does the how does the zine library work? Like, can people check them out like you would a book? Exactly. It's just like any other part of the library. And if I was a student here and, you know, on the computer trying to research things for my research paper. Yeah. <laughs> and I was searching the library catalog, would the zines in this library, like, pop up at, you know, if I searched for the right thing? <laughs> yes, absolutely. That is, like, very much what... I wanted when I founded the collection was for zines to be in the library catalog. So we had a guy who was doing, he was writing a book on Jews and punk, and he thought that he was going to maybe mention zines in the introduction, and he found how many Jewish punk zines there were, and he ended up writing a whole chapter about them. (laughs) So that's exactly what I wanted to happen, was people that might not know they needed zines until they found them. And another really cool thing about this collection is that the zines are also cataloged in WorldCat, which is like the big library catalog system. And that means that it's not just Columbia and Barnard students or researchers who can check them out. It's anyone. If the hosts of Unladylike wanted to borrow them, they could go to the Atlanta Public Library and request them via interlibrary loan. Oh, really? Yeah. And you'd send them to Atlanta? We'd send them, yep. Ooh. Oh, my God. Libraries are the coolest. Can we just say that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. So now you guys can go on there and just request, like, all 5,000 zines and get a sweet <laughs> little package at the library. Uh, Jenna also took me down to the archives of the zine collection, which is in the basement of the library. This is the archives. Ooh, so we're, we're beeping through a, a key card door. And it just got colder. Yes, you can feel that it is climate controlled in here. 
so yeah, this was like this big storage room that kind of felt like um, I, it kind of felt like walking into a spaceship because it was all white <laughs> and it did get colder and it just had these giant metal shelves that smushed together and then you can like open them up and get between them and find all the books that are stored down there. So what are the zines that are kept down there? Are they like fancy ones? Are they secret ones? Yeah, those are the the million dollar zines are kept down there. <laughs> no. So basically, it's where they keep a second copy of all the zines for preservation. Or some zines that they only have one copy of live there permanently and they have to be fetched by an archivist if you want to look at them. So did Jenna show you any of her favorites? Well, Jenna was very clear with me that she doesn't pick favorites. <laughs> but, Is that like part of the librarian's code? <laughs> I think it must be. <laughs> Yeah, she said one reason that she can't pick a favorite is just because of how many zines Jenna has read. Have you read all the zines in this room? I actually have. Yes. Yeah, so she she's literally read every single zine uh, in their collection, and that's so that she can, you know, tell people about them, help researchers find what they're looking for, and so that she can write about it when she's, like, putting it into the system and giving it, like, labels. Jenna did show me a few special zines in the collection, though, like one zine by Kathleen Hanna from 1993, so uh, a Bikini Kill zine. She said it was one of the oldest ones in the collection, probably. Jenna uh, also showed me some zines by one of her good friends, Celia Perez. And I know I said that my favorite zines are very often the, like, kind of lowest rent, easiest to reproduce. But, like, what really moves me is sometimes when there are individual elements, like, so you know that Celia had to paste each and every copy of this. So the zine that she was showing me is like the size of like a half sheet of paper and it was handwritten and photocopied. But then on different pages were these little kind of like personal prizes. Here's a bag of constant comment tea that is taped or otherwise adhered in, which, you know, archivists wouldn't like. But But yeah, there were like little interactive elements that you could actually like take out of the zine that Celia had like handmade and put inside of the zine itself. Like here's an example of a thing I'm talking about where there's like a little envelope that's pasted in and I just opened it. It was sealed with washi tape and inside it is another little tiny zine. (laughs) Like zine Russian nesting dolls? (laughs) Russian nesting zines? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And Jenna said she loves elements like this, which honestly I did too, because they just show the care and attention that zine creators put into these things that they're making. Um, And the cool thing about seeing her friend Celia's zines was that she is actually the person who inspired Jenna to start making and reading zines in the first place. It was sort of a revelation. I was like, oh, this is what zines are all about. Because what she'd given me was a personal zine or what's um, shortened to per zine. And I think people sharing their individual stories touched me in a way that, like, the literary compilation zine hadn't. So this was almost 20 years ago. And before that, Jenna had really only seen, like, political zines or poetry zines. And Celia's personal zine inspired her to to make her own. And her zine is kind of this, um, you know, like the annual newsletters that people send out at Christmas time about their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every year my dad sends like a massive letter with like 
literally like taped on scanned in photos on it. So, yeah. Oh, hey, that's um, that's kind of a zine. I know. <laughs> sound like a little zine over yeah. there. Chat. <laughs> but Jenna's zine is sort of like that, except it's a collection of art and writing that she's made throughout the previous year. And then she sends it out to all of her friends and family. Um, and she also recently made a compilation zine called are you there god it's me menopause (laughs) (laughs) yes there's like a zine for everything i know yeah and and also there's kind of a zine for everyone which is sort of the point you know um and that's what jenna says makes zines so important to her and what what makes preserving them so important to her is so often they're made by you know folks from marginalized communities and we might lose those stories if we didn't take the time and effort to preserve those zines no matter how small or how personal they might be. Zines redefine what success is. So, like, maybe they don't and will never have a huge reach, um, but there's they don't have to. There's, like, this intense sharing that happens. And that's, like, really what Jenna wants the collection at Barnard to be for. Like, she wants the zines there to be saved and stored and read and used for research, yes. But she's also trying to make sure that some of that sharing is preserved, too. Why is it important to you that this library exists and that um, students can engage with it? Um, Well, a few things. One of the things that I love about the zine library is you walk in— And it's a predominantly female space. It's a default queer space. It's a space that's intentionally people of color. So it's like making the world that I think a lot of Barnard students want to see. And then I also like that it is... Um, zines are very often written by people that are closer to the age of college students. Mm -hmm. So it reflects back their experience. You know, it's like an accessible history. You might get to read about someone who is in your situation in other books in our collection, but they'd probably be mediated by a psychiatrist in a case study or by Mm -hmm. a journalist or by like someone else. So they're not really the person speaking in their own words. Students have this great knowledge that they can apply critically to zines that they may not have, they may not have the skill or they may not have the confidence to do with textbooks or with other published material. Um, But because zines are kind of peer publications, they can look at it, they can relate to it, they can not relate to it. And I think that Academic libraries can be a place of expertise and knowing, and it's kind of nice to find something on the shelf that is also questioning. Well, and it seems like it lowers the barrier of entry, kind of going back to what Kristen Torres told us um, at the top of the show about kind of zines removing our need to be kind of precious about our art and our creativity and only publish things when they are perfect, which is something that I struggle with hour by hour, truly. Um, So just thinking about publication and creativity from sort of the opposite vantage point of not expecting, you know, hordes of people to read it um, Mm. is sort of empowering in a way like kind of gives gives you maybe the kick in the pants to just make it already 
Totally. Yeah. And that was like an inspiring thing about being in the library and just being surrounded by like what basically look like pieces of copier paper stapled together. And but like that being in a real library and around the corner from literally the classics and and Jenna is sort of telling the world by having this collection that like these zines are just as valuable um, as all those other books and all those other ways of knowing. So Abigail did visiting the zine library Give you a little inspo for wanting to maybe make some zines yourself? Hell yeah. It made me uh, want to grab a pen and some copier paper and get to work, you know, send something up to the library. <laughs> I would love that. I know. I really hope to see you in a library one day too, Abigail. <laughs> sweet. Well, thank you so much for uh, for going on a little zine adventure. Yeah, this has been really fun to listen to. Thanks for sending me up there. All right. So this brings us back, Caroline, to St. Susia and the bigger picture of why a zine like that that lasted for almost five years and 14 issues is worth preserving and and what lived experiences are being captured in all those archives and zine libraries across the country. That's right. And we asked Isabel and Natasha to share a favorite piece from St. Susia. And the one they chose, it honestly couldn't be a more perfect closer for today's conversation. Totally agree. So y'all, here's Natasha reading a poem she wrote for the zine. Um, okay. okay. So this is from issue two. This is called Demasiado Tarde. It's too late for me to write a story of the struggle of my flesh. La historia de la lucha de cada morena. Yes, my weta grandma called me fea, and I've learned to hate the where are you from, but I'm not just skin. It's too late for this to be about hair. A woman's crowning beauty is not length and style. It's not smooth legs and undone puberty. It's not eyebrows that say bitch instead of Frida. It's too late to tell the story of Spanglish, of how my tongue is too agresiva for Guatemala and too proper for South Texas bar fights. No vato chinga su madre. No, no, it's too late. In time, in my history, in our history. This is a new era. These are our days to take our culture and make it our own. Take the good and toss the bad. Eat the tamal and toss the husk. We can decide to walk away from machismo, Una gran despedida to specific gender roles. We can say chale to gente that don't take care of their partners or abuse their kids. And furthermore, fuck saying, at least he doesn't hit me. He doesn't deserve a cookie for not hitting you, and you deserve better. We can leave the dogma and guilt that comes with your first communion and follows you through the doors of Planned Parenthood. Leave it, mujer. Leave it in our past. But while we're picking and choosing, we gotta keep the good. Keep the respect for life and death that means a million times more than my calavera handbag and sugar skull t-shirt. Keep the recipes, whether that means you modify it with olive oil because your dad has diabetes or throw bacon fat on your beans so your kids will eat them. Keep the baile, even if you only dance at weddings and quinces. Keep the music, even if your primos only listen to Black Sabbath. Ozzy is Mexican as fuck for pissing on the Alamo. And we are so much more than mariachis and rancheras, and we are so much more than those assumptions. We are Mexicanas. We are Americanas. And we decide what that means to us, because it's too late to complain about other people's ideas of what we are and are not. It's time for us to define ourselves. Ita tamal and toss the husk. Thank you. I'm so proud of you. These days, Isabel and Natasha are on to new creative adventures together. 
Right now, they're actually working on a web series loosely based on their lives. Oh, I totally watch it, Caroline. Uh, but Isabel and Natasha still run the San Antonio Zine Fest and teach workshops about zines. And you can still find old issues of St. Susia online. All right, Kristen, so we set out on this zine quest inspired by Kristen Torres. And that's how we're going to wrap it up, too. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, Kristen, we have completed our zine quest. We're feeling good. How are you feeling? That was so much fun and educational. Thank you so much for suiting up. You have completed the zine quest. You get a zine quest patch to put on your cool <laughs> denim jacket. Yes. <laughs> such a big day. Um, so Kristen, do you have any parting words for listeners who might want to go on their own zine quest? Yes, I encourage anyone who has not uh, picked up a zine to attend a local zine fest. Uh, it's full of eclectic weirdos. So if you don't feel like you fit in anywhere, you'll definitely fit in at a zine fest. Um, I say eclectic weirdos with so much love and respect in my heart because I am also an eclectic weirdo. <laughs> Okay, y'all, have you been on a zine quest of your own? We want to hear about it. While you're at it, send us pictures of your zines because we want to share them on our Instagram. Yeah, be sure to tag us at Unladylike Media. You can also email us at hello at unladylike.co and join the conversation in our Facebook group. And don't forget, we need you to help us win that Webby Award. Oh, please do. Find the link to vote in the show notes for the episode. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Ash Sanders and Ali Delianas transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit Maycone, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Rattle at Mast. Special thanks to Ruben at Texas Public Radio and, of course, to Kristen Torres. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. This is the last episode of our season, but we'll be back in May with brand new episodes for you. In the meantime, we'll be releasing pep talks every week in Stitcher Premium. Tomorrow, our friend Julia Bainbridge is helping us get pepped up on spending time alone, my favorite thing in the world. Sign up for Stitcher Premium now to hear the pep talk and the newest season of Julia's show, The Lonely Hour. Go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the code unladylike to get a whole month of free listening. And make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen so you can be the first to know when our regular episodes are back. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Make a zine. All my poetry is gone. Oh, I'll never know what I was, what I was po- poeting about. Bummer. Maybe it's for the best. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think so. Pregnant pause. It's probably for the okay. best. Stitcher. 